Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. The passage this morning comes from Exodus chapter 18, verses 10 through 27. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you or in back of you, you can find the passage on page 60. Page 60. Exodus chapter 18. Starting in verse 10, hear now this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for the reading of your holy word, and now we do pray for you to speak to us as it is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, since December, we've been taking a brief hiatus from our series through the book of Exodus. Uh, In the fall, we got as far up to chapter 17, and by now we have seen uh, Moses' confrontations with Pharaoh. We've seen the ten plagues, the Passover, God's deliverance of his people at the Red Sea. We left off with the Israelites in the wilderness. They were grumbling about food and water. And the last chapter we saw, they were uh, surprise attacked by the Amalekites. So chapter 17 ended with Joshua leading the army into battle with Moses watching from a hilltop, holding high up into the air the staff of God, which represented the powerful presence of God. And that was to communicate that it was the Lord God who is the one fighting Israel's battles, and that he reigns supreme over all the gods of all the nations. That's been a consistent theme, really, throughout the book, his supremacy over all other gods. We've already seen how those ten plagues, those ten plagues in Egypt, they weren't just miraculous signs demonstrating God's power, but they were actually a polemic against the gods of Egypt. God was proving a point to Pharaoh and, and to all the Egyptians. You worship the Nile? Okay, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. You worship gods depicted with heads of, of a frog or of, of a cow? Well, I'm going to send a frog invasion or a disease to kill all your cattle. You worship the sun god? Well, I'm going to blot out the sun and you're going to sit in darkness. The point the Lord is proving is really the same point that Moses' father-in-law comes to recognize here in our chapter, in chapter 18, verse 11. Look there again. Listen to what he says to his son-in-law. Starting in verse 10, he says, Blessed, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, Now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, is greater than all gods. The Lord is greater than all gods. That's really the lesson that God has been teaching his people and teaching the nations throughout all of his mighty acts. The Lord is great, and he is greater than all gods. But church, let's be clear here. When the Bible speaks of God being greater than all gods, please do not imagine the Lord being greater merely in terms of power, like how Zeus is understood to be greater than all the other Greek gods, or how Vishnu is the greatest among all the Hindu gods. They are considered supreme gods among a pantheon of lesser gods. But in Scripture, in Scripture, the Lord's claim to supremacy is really a claim to singularity, He is greater than all gods, not merely in power, but in essence, he is the only God. You know, lately, the last few uh, months, I've been reading to my daughter, The Lord of the Rings, and so I've had to teach her. It's a great joy to teach her about all the different races that are found in Middle Earth. And so you've got these unassuming hobbits, right? And then you have stout dwarves and mighty men who are obviously stronger and greater. But then above them, you have these elves, these these majestic elves. But then even above the elves are the Maiar. You have guys like Gandalf, Saruman, even Sauron. They're all within that kind of 
hierarchy. And so they are even more powerful than elves. And so we typically think in those terms, right? We see things in terms of, of such a hierarchy of greatness and power. But please do not view God like that. Don't imagine the Lord being greater than all gods like Gandalf is greater than all hobbits. No, it's more like the way Tolkien is greater than all of his characters in his books. The Lord, the Lord is the author. The Lord is the creator. Everything else owes its existence to him. That's how he's greater. That's what Jethro recognized. And this greatness is what God wants everyone to know about. This great God wants to make himself known. We've seen this constant refrain as we've been going through Exodus of God saying, he's going to do this or he's going to do that to the Egyptians. And you shall know I am the Lord. You shall know I am. God acts in such a way as to spread the knowledge of his name. And here in chapter 18, we see that purpose advancing. You know, before I started prepping for this sermon, I, you know, I had a title all worked out. I had a direction that I thought I was going before I even studied the passage. I figured I was going to preach a message on leadership because, you know, many of us are familiar with this section here where Moses' father-in-law, you know, gives him some leadership, uh, leadership advice. I typically call it the Jethro principle of delegation. So I thought that's where I was probably going to be going with this. But when I actually got to study the text in context, I realized, you know, it's not really about leadership and leadership advice. This chapter as a whole is about the spread of the knowledge of the Lord and his greatness. You see, unlike the Amalekites in chapter 17, here we have a Midianite, a Gentile, who represents the proper response to the knowledge of the Lord and his great acts of salvation. The Amalekites, they heard about the Exodus, but it doesn't move them to worship. It moves them to battle. They attack the Israelites. But when Jethro, the Midianite, hears of the Exodus, he recognizes the message that was intended to be sent, and he worships. He worships God. That's how it should be. That's God's heart to spread the knowledge of his name to the praise of that very name. And in chapter 18, we see that purpose advancing. We see it advancing in particular in three different realms. And so if you're following along, you can look in your bulletin, you see an outline, and, and it's a simple outline of we seeing God's knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord advancing into first our own family, second, into all the families of the earth, and third, into the hearts of God's people. So that's, that's where we're going. Let's begin by considering the spread of the knowledge of the Lord into our own family. We're going to be focusing in particular on verses 1 to 9 of chapter 18, and we're going to look at the, at the, at the dynamics within Moses' own family. If you recall, back in chapter 2, Moses had fled from Egypt. He fled into the land of Midian. There he helped out uh, Jethro's family. And um, in response, Jethro gave him his daughter Zipporah as a wife. And Zipporah bore two sons to Moses. Now, at some point earlier in this story, Moses must have sent his wife and sons back home to his father-in-law Jethro. We don't know um, exactly 
uh, when that occurred, why that occurred, whether or not his, his family was actually present with him to see all the mighty events of the Exodus. We're not exactly sure, but at this point in the story, Moses has led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. Soon, in the next few chapters, we're going to see him receive the law of God. But before that happens, Jethro arrives with his family, reuniting Moses with wife and children. Now, in verse 3, we are reminded of his two sons and their unique names. Let's look at verse 3. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner, a stranger, an alien in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, uh, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, you've got to understand that in those days, they didn't consult, you know, books or websites on the top 100 baby names. So parents, they gave names based on the name's similarity to a meaningful word or statement that was spoken at the time of the birth, or a name that describes the circumstances surrounding the birth. So if after, you know, a baby was born and someone was to say, oh, it kind of reminds me of his grandfather who, who dug the first well in our village, then they're like, you shall be called Doug. And that's, you know, how it works. Like, okay, now every time we see Doug, we're going to be reminded of, of, of his grandfather and the contribution he made to our village. That's, that's what names were intended to do, to, to recall and to preserve the memory of significant events, especially within that community. So when Moses' first son was born, he was living in exile. He was living as a stranger in a foreign land, and so he names his son Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew for stranger there. So I was a stranger there. I was an alien there in Midian. And remember, why was he in Midian? Why was he in exile? It's because he had killed an Egyptian. He was on the run. And so remember, his sojourn was also his shame. But apparently, by the time of the birth of his second son, Moses came to recognize that though he was in exile because of his shame, because of his sin, his exile was also a means of deliverance because God used it to deliver him from the hand of Pharaoh who sought his life. So he was able to escape to Egypt and to be sheltered by this family in Midian. And so, by the time of the second son, Moses names him uh, Eliezer, which means my God is help. Eliezer's name is now a perpetual reminder of God's gracious help and deliverance to him. And so what now would happen is that every time he would see his boys and he would call them by name, Moses would essentially recall the story of his life. I was a stranger there, but God is my help. 
Every time he sees his sons, he's reminded of the work that God has done in his life. In fact, that's really a reminder of the story of Israel itself up to this point. Like Moses, Israel was a stranger, was a sojourner, an alien in the land of Egypt, but God was their help. He delivered them from Pharaoh's sword. That's the Exodus, right? That's, that's a story of God's help and deliverance for a people who, who have been alienated, a people who are enslaved. Well, friends, this same story, this same story can also be ours. We can experience that same transition that Moses went through, that Israel went through. We can experience that same transition when we come to Christ. We move from being strangers to God, we move from being alienated from him and enslaved to sin, to being helped by God, by, to being delivered by Christ. Like Moses, like Moses, every single one of us is a great sinner deserving of exile from God. But like Moses, while in the wilderness of our shame, God will graciously meet us in the person of Christ and he will be our help. So, friends, if, you, if you're feeling far from God right now in your life, if, if you're feeling like you're alienated from God, like you're in some kind of exile, you just need to go to Christ and experience this same beautiful transition. Tell Jesus, I know where I'm at. I am ashamed of it but I know you're not ashamed of me and that you will receive me, Jesus. I want you to be my deliverer. I want you to be my savior. You got to realize the Son of God went to the cross bearing our sins, and there on the cross, he was alienated by God. He, was, he, he died in the place of sinners like us so that if you turn, if you trust in Christ then this whole story that we've been looking at of God's help and salvation recalled for us by the names of these two sons, this story will be your story. It will be your salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure that like Moses, you have family members who are not worshipers of the Lord. They may be adherents of another religion, or they just claim to be non-religious, but really everyone worships something, everyone worships someone. The question then is, have you told them about the Lord? Have you told them about how much greater he is than whatever it is that they're worshiping? Moses is an example for us of someone who, not, who is not just responsible for shepherding a nation. He's also someone who made sure to shepherd his own family. He made sure to tell his father-in-law about the Lord. So look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Now there in the beginning of verse 8, that word for told, that's the Hebrew word for, for proclaiming or preaching. So Moses was preaching the Lord to his father-in-law. That, that's how Moses loved his family. He loved his family enough to preach the Lord to them. So what about you? 
Do you have family members who do not know the Lord? You should pray for the opportunity to preach the knowledge of the Lord to them. And pray especially for the courage to speak up when that opportunity does come. Like I, I know, I, I can speak from experience that it is, it is the hardest to share with family. It's because they know us the best and they've seen us at our worst. And so it's often really our shame that keeps us from preaching the Lord to our family members. It's because we're ashamed of our witness. But did you notice what Moses shared with his father-in-law? Look back at verse 8. Notice how he didn't just share all the highlights of the Exodus. Notice how it says he also shared their hardships. He told his father-in-law all the hardships that had come upon them in the way. And so that would have included all of those shameful moments, all of those shameful, shameful times when Moses and all the Israelites miserably failed in the wilderness. You know, when we do that, when, when we're honest about our hardships and transparent with our shame, then we have a unique opportunity to tell our family that the Lord is greater than all gods in the fact that he, unlike the gods of this world, loved us while we were still enemies, loved us while we were still sinners, shameful sinners, while we were still weak Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we have an opportunity to tell them about. That God, that the Lord saves us in spite of the sin and the shame that our family members are so familiar with in our lives. That should really free you. That should really liberate you from whatever is holding you back from telling them about the Lord. Because it's that very shame that could be a means for you to proclaim the grace and the power of God and his salvation. So friends, we've seen the spread of the knowledge of the Lord into Moses' own family. Now let's consider the next realm. Let's see it spread into all the families of the earth. What we see revealed in, in this chapter, in chapter 18, is really God's heart for the nations. Remember, Jethro wasn't just a family member who didn't worship the Lord. Remember, he was a Midianite priest, a Gentile, an outsider, a stranger to the covenants of promise. And yet he is not beyond the Lord's concern. Yes, the Lord has a chosen people. In the Old Testament, they were called Israel. It was one nation, one family that he chose to be his special covenant people, and yet Choosing his choosing of Israel was not to be a compliment to them, it was to commission them to spread the knowledge of the Lord to all the other families of the earth. That was always the intent. That's God's missionary heart. And it's beautiful to see the nations, as, as represented by this Midianite priest, to see the nations now coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. In case you're not familiar, the, the Midianites. They were uh, uh, ancient descendants of Abraham. They're actually from the line of Abraham, from uh, his wife Keturah, found in Genesis 25. Uh, but these Midianites, they weren't worshipers of Yahweh. They, they were still considered Gentiles. They worshiped other gods. And Jethro, 
uh, was one of their priests. But now when he hears of all that the Lord has done for Moses and for God's people, in verse 9 it says, Jethro rejoiced. He rejoiced in their deliverance. And then in verse 10, notice what rolls off of his lips. He says, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be, literally, Yahweh. This pagan priest of Midian is not just saying, praise God, praise God, like some kind of generic expression. No, he is using the covenantal name of God. He's using the name Yahweh. That's a name revealed specially to God's covenant people. But here, a Gentile is adopting it for himself. He is blessing Yahweh. And that's a big deal. Now, I know that there are some commentators who doubt that Jethro actually converted, but I would disagree. I I think he did. I think he did convert because of what he says in verse 11. Now I know. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because remember, what we've been saying before is that the whole purpose of the Exodus has been, you shall know. I'm going to do this. God says, I'm going to do this. So you shall know. You shall know. You shall know I am the Lord. Well, here Jethro says, now I know. I get it. I figured it out. You showed me. Now I know. I see Jethro as being depicted as the epitome of how God wants the nations, how he wants people to respond. That's why I think he became a true worshiper of Yahweh. So what's happening here is really the missionary task being played out before our eyes. Moses is preaching the knowledge of the Lord to a Midianite priest. He is taking the name of the Lord to a people where the name is yet to be named. That's what a missionary does, right? Honestly, I never saw Exodus chapter 18 as a missions text before. I thought it was about delegating leadership. But this moment here where the knowledge of the Lord is crossing into an unreached people, and now we see a pagan worshiper being converted, this moment here in chapter 18 is so close to the missionary heart of God. You know, later on in the scriptures, there's, there's this beautiful scene in Revelation chapter 15, at the very end of the Bible, where the heavenly host is standing with harps, harps of God in their hands, and it says that they are singing, and they are singing, it says, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's like a, maybe a duet going on, or they're just singing you know, one song and transitioning right into the other. I don't know how it works, but there are two songs they're singing, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, the song of Moses is obviously referring to that song that we looked at back actually in chapter 15 that celebrates the exodus from Egypt in Exodus 15. It was a wonderful song of redemption. But the song of the Lamb. Well, that carries an even sweeter tune as its lyrics focus on an even greater exodus from the bondage not just to one nation, but the bondage to to sin and death. In Revelation 15, 4, it says that they sing these words, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Isn't that what's happening here in our text? 
as God's righteous acts at the Red Sea are being revealed to this Midianite priest, he came and worshipped as it was as it was sung. And in the same way, in the same way, when God's elect among the unreached peoples of the world hear of the righteous acts of Christ and his death and resurrection, they too will come and they will worship. That's what the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are all about. Now, some people have this impression that in the Old Testament, God was only concerned with Israel, that he was just so preoccupied with this one family that he neglects all the other families of the world. But that's a false narrative. That's not true. When, when God blesses a chosen people, he does so with a view to blessing all the peoples of the world. And he, he does so not by elevating the nations to an equal status to rival Israel in its glory. No, but he, 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 he blesses the nations by grafting them into Israel like a wild olive shoot is grafted into the nourishing root of a good olive tree. According to the song of the Lamb, the nations are grafted into Israel through union with God's Son. All nations will come, all nations will worship God by being united, by being grafted into the Son of God. And the good news of Christianity, the good news is that anyone can be grafted in, regardless of where you come from, regardless of what language you speak, or what your social standing is, or what your political views are, regardless, you can be born again into the family of God. And not by rights, not by effort, but by faith in Christ, the Son. That's the good news. We have the privilege and we have the responsibility to preach this good news to all the families of the earth. So we've seen the knowledge of the Lord spreading into one family and then into all the families of the earth. Lastly, now let's look in verses 13 to 27, and we see the knowledge of the Lord spreading into the individual hearts of his people. This is the section where Jethro gives his son-in-law advice on how to divide the time-consuming labor of judging. We're told here that Moses would have to go from morning to night listing the case after case in any issue, no matter how, how small or how big, was all brought to Moses, and he would have to settle disputes, and he would have to make known, as he says, the statutes of God and his laws. In other words, Moses was revealing the will of the Lord to these people. They didn't know God's will for this or for that situation, so they had to go to Moses. They went to Moses, and he would tell them God's will. Now, this is an exhausting task of having one man mediate the will of God for an entire people. And, and, and this really, if you think about it, it sets the stage for the giving of the law, which is what we're going to see in the next few chapters. Keep in mind here that the Ten Commandments and the whole book of the covenant, these written revelation from God was meant to be for the people of God, for them to hear or for them to read for themselves directly. This, this episode here with Jethro 
is intended to make the point that God's design was never for his will to be, to be mediated by just one priest. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests where everyone could know the will of God personally because it has been revealed, it has been written down. Having, having an entire people rely and depend on one man or one magisterial office to know and to apply the revealed will of God is, as Jethro put it, not good. That is not the way that it should be. And if you think about it, that was the very concern that fueled the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers recognized the need to make accessible the revealed will of God to the people of God. There shouldn't be just one man or one magisterial office that we all depend upon to know God's will. No, God has revealed his will to all his people in Scripture. So the church is to be a kingdom of priests. And that's why the reformers were so burdened to get the Bible into the hands of the people in a language that they could read and with the skills to make proper interpretations. That has been God's design. That's been God's intent from from Exodus, from the book of Exodus. So think about this, Christian. The will of God has been revealed and made accessible to you in a book that you can read for yourself. And for most of us, it's leather-bound, it's nicely formatted, it's accurately translated for readability. I mean, what a privilege. How blessed are we? But do we take advantage of this great privilege? Or... Are we relying too much on pastors and disciplers and mentors to mediate the will of God for us? Now, I I know there is a proper place for seeking pastoral advice, seeking wise counsel from experienced believers, but there is also the danger of shirking your own priestly responsibility to search the Scriptures yourself to discern the revealed will of God. I think that's the warning and advice that our text has to offer to each of us. Now let's look at verse 19. Look at verse 19, and we see the advice that Jethro gives to Moses in verses 19 to 20. He basically suggests, Moses, you remain as the primary teacher of the law, but in verses 21 and 22, he suggests that Moses is to select capable men and to empower them to judge simpler cases among smaller groups of people. And Moses only has to concern himself with the most difficult of cases. Now, in verse 21, we're given three qualifications for the kind of men that Moses should be looking for to carry out this particular task. They are to be men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate bribes. That is, they're not lovers of money. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 18, it's, it's, it's a related text. It's talking about the same event. We're given more qualifications. They are to be wise. They are to be understanding and experienced men who can judge impartially that is based on the revealed words of God and not judging based on the loud cries of his people. Now, I really think, even though it's you know, talking about this particular um, role and, and, and these qualifications, I think it's really beneficial for all believers to ask themselves, do I fit these qualifications? 
Would I be someone whom God could use to help others understand his revealed will? Like, do I have the wisdom and the understanding to rightly interpret his word, the Bible? Am I easily intimidated or swayed from speaking the truth in love? Do I fear God? fear him enough to speak his will, no matter how hard or unpopular it is. That's the kind of person that God is looking for, to be a, a means of, of helping others to understand his will. Now, how did Moses respond to Jethro's advice? Well, if you look at verse 24, it says, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Now, the thing is, is that he didn't follow the advice simply out of respect to elders or just to stay on the good side of the in-laws. I mean, I think there's some wisdom there, but that's not his motivation. No, Moses intended to listen to Jethro's voice because in Jethro's voice, he discerned the voice of God. Look at verse 23. Jethro concludes by saying, If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. So Jethro understood that his son-in-law is still a prophet and a priest of the Lord. So he knew Moses would listen to him, but Moses would ultimately seek God's direction in this matter. And that's why he says, God will direct you. So Moses did seek out the will and direction of God, and he discerned that it was to do all that Jethro had recommended. And he does it, and it ends up blessing Moses, and it ends up blessing the people of Israel. So, friends, this, this passage, like I said, is, is really not what I thought it was about. It's not really about leadership principles. It's about the spread of the knowledge of God. It's about this progression that we see in Scripture from knowing God's will through human mediators here in chapter 18 to, as we progress, to knowing God's will through written revelation, which is going to be in chapter 19 and on. But even that's not good enough. Because even with the privilege of having written revelation, having direct accessibility to the will of God, the people of God are still unfaithful. They still fall into idolatry. We're going to see that later in chapter 32 with the whole, you know, a worshiping the the golden calf episode. So what's missing for God's people, even though we see the will of God channeled through mediators now in the written word, what's still missing, though, has to do with the heart. There needs to be a change of heart. And we get hints of what's missing in places like Deuteronomy 6.6, where it says, and these words, these written, this written revelation that I command you today, these words shall be on your heart, not just in your minds, not just you uh, understanding it as you read it. It has to get down into your heart. Or later in Deuteronomy 11:18, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. So that's God's goal, to have God's will not just written on stone or on paper, but written on our hearts until his words and his will become an integral part of who we are. And that's why the old covenant that God made with Israel was insufficient. Now, let's be clear, it was a good and righteous covenant, but the fact that it, it, it failed, and, and the fact that it failed to produce faithful obedience from the heart 
was not a fault in the old covenant itself. The scripture says the fault is actually in the people. It's in us. The Old Testament is not the problem. We're the problem. Our hearts are hardened by the sin in it. And that's why God's plan was to bless a chosen people as a means to bless all the peoples of the earth by establishing a new covenant. And this new covenant would involve what was missing in the old, a change of heart, a change of heart for everyone who enters into it. And so God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, that in this new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant, the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So the whole point I'm making is that the whole New Testament emphasis on obeying God from your heart, that's not an innovation. That's just a reaffirmation of the same morality and obedience that the Old Testament was always calling for, for us to internalize God's law so that we obey from the heart out of faith in God and with a desire to please God. That's been the plan all along, for the knowledge of the Lord to spread into the individual hearts of God's people. Now, friends, in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And I, I do think that in the church today, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the interpretation and application of the Old Testament law. Some are going to say it's not even relevant for Christians since now we have the New Testament. We don't need to study this. We don't need to, 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 to abide by it. They're, they're just going to disregard the law. Others are going to go to the other extreme and treat the law like it's this checklist of, of do's and don'ts. And so we're going to wade into all of that in the weeks to come. But I just want to leave you with this question. Do you love the law of God? Would you describe the law as something that's cherished in your heart? Because a Christian that is someone in the new covenant established by Jesus' blood, a Christian will answer yes, or at least want to emphatically say yes. Christians are those who have the knowledge of God, who have the law of God written on their hearts. So do you love the law of God? Let me pray for you. Lord, grant us new hearts. If we have not received a new heart, a gift of the new covenant by your Spirit, may you change us from inside out, giving us a new heart of God, a new heart that loves your word, that loves your law, that faithfully obeys to please you. Oh Lord, do this within us, we pray, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.